Chapter 7, we now segue into the department of weights and measures. The Torah is very meticulous about the laws of weights and measures. If somebody weighs objects for his colleague, using weights that are underweight, lacking, from the traditional weights, which the people of that locale have all agreed to, which means in the place where he lives, there are acceptable weights, and he uses a different measure, which is less. Why not? It's a living. Or if somebody not weighs, but measures. Remember, there are weights and there are measures. Somebody measures with a measure which is less than the measure used by the people of that area, of that region. That act is a transgression of a negative commandment. The Torah says, specifically, or as one of my kids used to say when they were little, specifically, do not act deceitfully. Do not do iniquity. When it comes to judgment, weights and measures are considered judgment. And the Torah defines, what kind of judgment? Measures, weights, and liquid measures. All these have to be precise. Even though a person who measures with an inaccurate measure, or a person who measures with a lacking weight, is considered a thief because what is he doing? He's stealing. He's selling somebody a pound of something, and it's not a pound. Of course, what he used was not a pound. It was, what is a pound? 16 ounces, right? He used 15 ounces. It adds up. You make a living. He is a thief in simple terms. There's no other name. So we would think, based upon what we learned earlier, that he has to pay double. Because thieves have to pay kefel double. No. He does not have to pay double. He just has to make up that which he was missing. Why does he not have to pay double? I'm glad you asked. That's a good question. The answer is because he's not a thief. He's a robber. Because robbers, Gazlanim, and we're about to go into the laws of Gazlanim soon. A Gazlan, which means somebody who openly steals, is considered a robber, a highwayman, and they don't have to pay double. The guy who has a scale that is not an honest scale, he's a robber. Anybody who comes in can tell it, I guess. El okay, there is no lashes for the violation of this negative commandment, even though usually when one violates a negative commandment, lashes come along with it. Why not here? Because whenever money has to be paid, the money takes the place of lashes. There's no lashes and money, as we learned. Here he has to make restitution. Gimel, furthermore, not only may we not use weights and measures that are less than they should be, but anybody who has sitting in his house, or in his store, a weight or a measure that is lacking an underweight or undermeasure, weight or measure, just having it, it transgresses a negative commandment, as it says, a verse, you shall not have in your pocket two sets of weights, etc. You can't even have it. Why? Because if you have it, you're tempted to use it. Even if the guy says, listen, you know what I'm using this weight and measure for? This measuring cup for? I'm using it as a toilet. I'm not measuring with it. This is my restroom. Also, it's still forbidden. Use something else as a toilet. Even though he represents, clearly he's not buying and selling with it. Maybe one day, somebody will come into his house. It'll be an empty house. He'll see a weight. He'll use it. The yin and use it to measure and it's on the weight. So the buyer will be cheated. That's how meticulously insistent the Torah is on this law. And this negative commandment violation, again, has no lashes associated. Why? Because all he does is has it in his house. There's no action involved. There is never lashes for the violation of a negative commandment that doesn't call for an action. He's not doing anything. There's no deed. In order for lashes to be applicable, there has to be a deed. Furthermore, for how you want me to punish all the secret weights and measures, shall the of the people of that city, like we are in L.A. County, L.A. City, departments of weights and measures, if they were chasume sealed, with a seal of the department, you know, in our world, there is a department of weights and measures that comes in checks. And very often they have some kind of a seal that they put on. So what if the weights and measures were sealed with a particularly known seal? And this particular weight or measure, do not have that seal. The seal of approval, a good housekeeper. You can tell when I grew up. If it doesn't have the seal, then one may use it for other needs in the house. Because everybody knows you wouldn't use it for weights and measures if it doesn't have that seal of approval. Similarly speaking, what if you have a cellar, which is a coin, like a dollar, that was nicked on the side, if it was nicked on the top, it would be obvious. But this is nicked on the side. Now, the big question is, are coins used for what they represent, or are they used for their weight in silver? That's the big question. If they're used for what they represent, it's not a big deal. But still, 
it might be used for its weight in the precious material. It should not be used. I'm sorry. Let me backtrack. A coin that was nicked should not be made a weight amongst his weights because it's not complete. Somebody will see the coin. will assume that it weighs what it weighs and it doesn't. The lady is a candle bang group of. Furthermore, he shouldn't put it amongst his scrap metal. The lady can be one of the top of the He shouldn't put a hole in it and hang it on his kid as a amulet, as a tzatzka. Shema yobe achav yasen because we're concerned that somebody else will come and make it into a weight. So he's misleading the next guy. Ela yishchak, he should either grind it down to dust, a yashchak, or cut it up into pieces, a yokait, or pulverize it, a yashchak, or or throw it into the Dead Sea, or others say the Mediterranean Sea, something with salt. However, if it became less and less of the traditional coin size, until it became half, if instead of a sella, it's now half a sella, instead of a silver dollar, it's now a silver half a dollar, then you can hold on to it, because it's no longer a dollar, it's a silver, it's a half a dollar. What if it was more than half or less than half, or rather less than half or more than half? Yokeit, he should cut it, he should trim it, until he makes it half. If it's only missing less than a sixth, you can hold on to it and do business with it, because the rule is in business, and we will learn about this. There is a rule in business that up to a sixth of the price, people don't go crazy over. If you're making a profit, back and forth, the buyer is taking advantage, the seller is taking advantage, up to a sixth of the price, people will understand. More than a sixth is cheating. And we're going to learn about that. In this case, as long as it's less than a sixth off what it should be, it's okay to do business. Abel, lay the It's never okay to wait because weights have to be precise. Shakol, pachas mishtus, less than a sixth. Reib neodam leichlin bei b'maso b'makon. Most people forgive business transactions as long as the guy is gaining less than a sixth of the price, which is what, like 17, 18 percent, something like that. Mashu kazeh. Okay. Sela shenib gebam eptsa. What if a coin, a sela, was damaged in its center? Also the machra lahorag lechoram. Then. It's okay to hold on to it, but it should not be sold to people who might be killers or thieves. Meaning, he says, it should not be sold to people who will intimidate the people they deal with. If you see a guy that looks like a killer, or you see a guy that looks like a thief, you're not going to say, excuse me, I think your coin has a hole in it. Because you figure that if you leave with your life, you're in good shape. Therefore, one should not sell it to an intimidating person. Because they'll cheat other people. But in this case, it has a hole in the middle. Nekla, he could put a hole in it, complete, and he could divide it, and he could hang it up on the ear of a child because it has a hole in it already. Give me one second here. 16.66 is a sixth. Okay. Zion, the set measures that a person creates should be traditional measures. Saw, either a saw, which is a traditional measure of Torah, or, I'm sorry, saw or half a saw, or a quarter of a saw, or a cob, a cob, a half a cob, a cob, a quarter of a cob, and half of a quarter, which is an eighth, or and an eighth of a quarter, which I believe is a 32nd. But he should not make two cobs, two cobbin, that was a 24th of a cob, not a 32nd, but a 24th. He should not make two cobs. Why? Because two cobs is too close to a quarter of a saw. Because a quarter of a saw is a cob and a half. A cob and a half looks too similar to two cobs, and people will make a mistake. They'll think it's one and use the other. The chain saw also be dislocked in liquid measure. There is a measure called a hin, a a hin, or a third of a hin. All of these are used by the Torah of sacrifices. Or a vias a hin, a quarter of a hin, a leg and a leg, a leg and a half a leg, or a vias and a quarter of a shminus and an eighth. The question is, why is a third and a fourth of a hin not forbidden? Yes, they are so similar. The average eye can't readily tell the difference. Even though they could be exchanged for one another. Because they were in the base of going back to the time of Moses. Therefore, we don't want to change tradition. Whether one does business with a Jew or a non-Jew, stealing is forbidden. Makes no difference. If somebody weighs or measures with a lacking weight or measure, violates a negative commandment of the Torah. He has to return the item. Who was it? One of our presidents was it Abe Lincoln or George Washington walked a mile to return a penny or something like that. I don't think he was Jewish. Maybe he was. His name was Abe. So also it is forbidden to deceive a non-Jew in calculations in business. You must be as precise with a non-Jew as with a Jew. The law is the same. One should reckon. You shall reckon with your purchaser. You've got to know the numbers. Who? A Jew? No. A purchaser. A Jew, a non-Jew. Makes no difference. Furthermore, even if you have dominion over him and you can rule over him, makes no difference. Fair is fair. How much more so? 
How much more so a non-Jew who's not under your domain, under your dominion? Because cheating a Jew or even a non-Jew is part of the commandment. All those who engage in these practices are abominable. All those who act crookedly, no matter whether they're doing so with a Jew, with a non-Jew, crooked is crooked, and iniquity is iniquity, and abominable is abominable. Yes, the same applies to real estate. So also with the measure of real estate, land. If a person deceives another with regard to measurement of land, how do you measure land? You measure it, so you can cheat. He transgresses a negative commandment. As it says, You shall not do iniquity when it comes to judgment. With measure, say our sages who meet the that's the measure of real estate. This is the meaning of this verse. Do not act with iniquity in Mishpat. Not in the judgment of weights. Not measures. What's the word Mishpat? Even a tiny measure. The size of a Mishpat. Which is one thirty-sixth of a log. Tiny. The amount doesn't matter. In general, in Jewish law, there is a principle. Din pruta kedin meya. The law of a penny is as important as the law of a hundred dollars. This was the time when a penny was worth money and a hundred dollars was worth money. Today we'll say it differently. The law of a dollar is the same as the law of a million dollars. In Jewish law, there are no small claims court. I'll tell you a childhood story. When I was a kid, my father, of blessed memory, was our teacher. And I had a dispute with one of my classmates about a baseball card. I don't know if you're old enough to remember how precious baseball cards were. It was unbelievable. So I said the baseball card was mine, and he said it was his. I come to my father, he should be the judge. My father says, what are you fighting about a baseball card? It's so unimportant. Here's a nickel. Go buy yourself another pack of cards. I said, uh-uh, we just learned. The law of a penny is the same as the law of a hundred. My father said, you're right. I was a wise guy even then. <sighs> uh, okay. Yud b'nei chavura, members of a group. Members of a hevra. There are all kinds of groups. Some people are very generous with each other. Others are more meticulous. To be exact, it depends on the culture. When there are members of a group who are meticulous with each other, if I owe you a penny, I'll pay you a penny. I'm sorry. Where they exchange one portion, for example, of a sacrificial offering with another. Or he borrowed some food and he returned it. He borrowed a cup of sugar and gave him back a half a cup of sugar. Because this hebra, because this group is meticulous, and they did not act meticulously, they transgressed this transgression of being dishonest in weights and measures, or numbers, counting. There's also another law which he touches upon here. We learned earlier it's forbidden to take or give a loan on Shabbos or a festival. Why is it forbidden to take or give a loan on Shabbos and a festival? Lest one transgress the forbidden labor of writing, because usually when you give a loan or you take a loan, you write a note. So therefore, we're concerned, our sages were concerned it's going to be an automatic practice. Someone's going to whip out a piece of paper and write a note. Therefore, we say you don't make loans. So if people are just generous with each other, here's the sugar enjoy. But if they're meticulous, I'm lending you a cup of sugar, you got it. then it may not even be permissible to do that on the Sabbath or the holiday. What if somebody moves the boundary of his fellow? He's a, he has a property which he shares with his neighbor, and the boundary moves. He moves the boundary. And he took his neighbor's property, and by moving the boundary, he made it part of his property, even if it's only a finger's worth, which is tiny. In Bechoska also, if he did it with impunity, with power, with might, he's a thief, he's a robber. If he did it underhandedly in the middle of the night, he is a thief. If it happened in the Holy Land of Israel, there's a special mitzvah, he violates two negative commandments, either stealing or robbing, in addition, there's another commandment, do not move the boundary, and that's a commandment in Israel. And this negative commandment is only, one is only liable for this in Israel, in your inheritance. You days, 12, the closing, Paragraph of this chapter, and here the Rambam makes a statement about weights and measures. The punishment for a person who uses dishonest weights and measures are more severe, more than the punishment of acts of immorality. Wow. The punishment that Hashem distributes, gives out for false, for dishonest activity and weights and measures are more severe than that of acts of immorality, of sexual immorality. Why? Because one is between man and God. And one is between man and man. Here you're cheating your customer. Hashem is very, very upset, so to speak, about that. Somebody who denies the fact that the Torah even cares about my scale. 
It's as if he denies the importance of the exodus of Egypt. Which is the beginning of God's commandment. In the Ten Commandments it says, I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, weights and measures is as important as denying that God took us out of Egypt. Like today we have Holocaust denial. We have Egypt denial. Because when a person uses false measures, he implies that Hashem does not involve himself in material matters. He says, God doesn't care about my business. And the falseness of that premise was proven by the exodus of Egypt, at which time the Jewish people saw, the world saw, awesome miracles because the Jewish people were being oppressed. And that has to do with the material existence. Therefore, we have to know that Hashem cares about every detail. The Kabbalah of Mitzvah anybody who accepts upon themselves the commandment of weights and measures, Hadeh Zameh Debit Yisrael it is as if he acknowledges the miracle of the exodus of Egypt, which was the stepping stone to all of the commandments. End of chapter 7. Rambam, Mishneh Torah, Hilchais, Geneva, the laws of theft. Perik Shmini, chapter 8. We continue in the laws of weights and measures. Even today in many places there is a department of weights and measures who comes into stores and makes sure that the weights that you're being charged for are correct. Because the Torah is very meticulous about this as we learned in the earlier chapters, continuing now with chapter 8, Halacha 1. Mitzvah say it is a positive commandment, one of the positive commandments of the Torah, Litzadek, to make sure, to correct, the scales, and the weights, and the measures, as we say here, mucho, mucho, extremely carefully, to be meticulous and exact in their measures, when they are produced, as the verse says, etc. We should have correct scales. So also, though this law applies, maybe the Sakarka in land measure as well. So we need to be precise in the measurement when we measure land according to the mainstay which are explained in geometry because it's not simple to measure land. You need to know the principles as espoused in geometry. Because even a finger breadth of land should be viewed as if it was filled with something that was very precious at that time which is the product of saffron. Saffron is a spice that was very expensive during the time of the Mishnah. What about the four cubits? A cubit is about a foot and a half, so the six feet that are adjacent to a choritz, to an irrigation ditch, which is not very useful, and it's more or less considered public. This can be approached in a more non-exact way. does not have to be measured as carefully. We learned earlier that any land that runs along the river bank, they're not measured at all, because even though they might belong to someone, they are for public usage. Because we learned earlier that when people would go out to bring a boat in, they would have to have the space along the river to be able to tug the boat. Anyone who measures land, if you have two partners who are affecting a split, or what have you, two heirs, you don't measure for one in the summer, for one in the rainy season. Why? Because it has to do with the fact that the rope, which is used for measuring, will contract in the summer, because you have the moisture expands and the heat contracts. Therefore, if you measure length, you're not going to have the same length with a moist rope as you're going to have with a dry rope. Therefore, if a rope was not used, but a rod was used, or iron chains were used, or anything, or anything like that, and the then we're not concerned with measuring for one air or partner in the winter and one in the summer, because it's not going to expand or contract. Weights should not be made, not of iron, and not of metal, not in general of a variety of metals. What's the concern? We learned this earlier. The concern is, because they'll rust. And when metal rusts, it weighs less. Rust weighs less than metal. So what should you use for weights? Abel Eisin, you do use shel tzchiach, sela, v'shel tzchuchias, v'shel eben shoam, u'kayetzebohem. You should make them from marble, from glass, from diamond, or the like. And, in fact, the Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah say that perhaps weights should be made from silver or gold, which are not materials that will change in any rusting process or what have you. One of the reasons silver is such a precious commodity, gold, certainly is because it's constant and does not change. Now they used to have a leveling rod where if they fill up a pail of whatever, they have a rod which they used to level it. 
So the stick that's used to level the top of a dry measure should not be made shaudalas of a gourd or another form of a vegetable, because obviously it is very light. Because it's, it's very light, and it's not going to give you an effective flattening process. Nor should it be made out of metal, because it is heavy. It's made of olive, wood, or nutwood, walnut, boxwood, sycamore wood, or similar. Hey, the stick used to level the top of a dry measure should not be made with one side narrow and one side thick because that's not going to give you a smooth measure. It's going to give you an uneven measure, obviously. Also, one should not level the measure poquito, poquito, little by little because otherwise the seller will be cheated. How should you do it? Don't do it in one fell swoop either. Because the buyer will be cheated. But it should be done evenly in an even process. One should not bury weights in salt so that their weight will be reduced. Others say that salt will increase the weight depending upon what the weight is made out of. Nor should one heat that item which is being measured in a liquid measure because the heat will cause it to be an dishonest measure. Some people say this means boiling the liquid itself. When the liquid is boiled, it expands, and the vapor arising from it fills the measure. Alternatively, the vapor arising from liquid will prevent the purchaser from seeing that the measure is not full. So either way, we don't use a boiling substance. Even if the measure was very little, you say, what's the big deal? It's only a tiny bit. Because the Torah was very concerned by the slightest deviation from an honest measure. As it says in the list of measures, it starts with larger measures. And then the last item in the list is Uvan Surah. And using a Mesura. What is a Mesura? It's one small measure. One part. It's a 33rd, says the Rambam. Others say a 36th of a Lug. Okay, what is a Lug or a Log? It's 11.63 ounces, according to the Kahos Chomish. A 33rd of that is 0.352 of an ounce. Even that, the Torah was concerned about. And now, we're talking about how scales. Back then, they had the old-fashioned scales. How they, I think it was the era before digital scales. So, the old-fashioned scales had to be made properly, depending upon what you were going to weigh on them. People who sell scrap iron, like scrap dealers. You know, scrap iron is heavy. You need a truck full for it to be worth something. Or other people who deal with heavy weight materials. So, so they have to construct the scale that the balance that the person who's weighing holds in his hand should hang freely in the air for at least three hand breaths. That's point number one. At least three hand breaths above the ground. Otherwise, it's going to hit the ground. And someone's going to make a lot of money because it hits the ground. And the length of the cables, the center pole and the cables, should be should be 12. Okay, a tepach we learned is 3.15 inches, according to the Kahot Chumash. So, 3 Tvachim is about 9.5 inches, 12 Tvachim, 37.8 inches, like a yardstick. So that's how big it has to be, because you're measuring heavy stuff. So you need a space to go back and forth. Tess, moving right along, 9, someone who sells bulky and heavy stuff, but not as heavy, whether it's wool merchants or glass merchants. So, the, the length that is hung in the air, should be two tepachs, two tepachim, or in the above the ground, two and the center pole and the cables should be tisha, or tisha tepachim, should be nine tepachim, again a tepach, 3.15 times nine, 28.35 inches, so more than, a little more than two feet, yud, meznayim shalchenbani, that scales of a storekeeper, vishal balabayis, or of a homeowner, the length of this balance, which they hang by, should be tepach, one hand breath, 3.15 inches, and the same height from the earth, and the center pole and the cables, or six tepachim, about 18.9 inches. What about 
the cables on which the balance is hung, shows off. So also the cables of scales used to weigh gold, or by very expensive purple fabric, where a little bit is worth a lot. Okay, the length of this scale is sholish et boys. Only three fingers wide. What is a finger in halacha? According to the Kahakomish, 0.79 of an inch. Times three, 2.37 inches. Because you're weighing gold. And its height from the ground should be sholish et boys. Three fingers, the same 2.37 inches. And it's balance and the length of its chains, according to what you want. Because again, it's very small and very meticulous and weighs very light objects. Yudbeis, 12. Here we come into an interesting halacha. Where is the biblical source which teaches us that the seller always has to give the buyer a little more? A little more. Give him the benefit of the doubt. Give him a little more. Shenemar, as the verse says, a whole stone, a correct one, you should have, which means it should be complete. Amra Torah, the Torah says, you want to really do the mitzvah? Justify from what you have and give the buyer a little more. Give the customer a little extra. Okay, how much is a little? The comma, how much? So he says, if you're talking about a moist measure, a liquid measure, the seller should throw in for the benefit of the buyer one one hundredth. One one hundredth. Will be Yovesh in dry measure. Achasli Arba may one four hundredth. Commentary say, why in liquid? One one hundredth. And in dry, one four hundredth, which is a lot less. Because in liquid, we're always concerned that the liquid will stick to the scale. So we have to give a little more. You know, the liquid, how do you get the liquid to go completely away from the scale? Whereas dry, it's either there or it's not there. Kate, for example, if. Ten litra of moist were sold. It gives them an extra amount, one-tenth of one litra as an extra, which is one hundredth. It should be sold twenty litra. Dry. He gives an extra one of a twentieth. So that's one four-hundredth. Using the same ratio, whether a lot or a little. So the seller has to give the buyer a little bit more. Now he says, When does the above apply? When you sell by having the naked eye, look at the scale. But in a place where it's actually customary to tip the scale, then you have to tip the scale at least a hand breadth, which is 3.15 inches in favor of the purchaser. In order to appreciate this, we really need to know how the scales work, and so on. What if somebody was weighing off 10 liters? The customer should not say do it one by one, because he figures he'll get extra for everyone. He can wait 10 at a time. And one tip of the scale. In a place where it's customary to measure with a small measure, he should not measure with a large measure. In a place where it's customary to measure in a large measure, he should not measure in a small measure. In a place where it's customary to measure, he should not measure with a larger one, with a smaller one, and give less money. In a place where, I'm sorry, in a place where one evens off the measure, one should not sell a heaping measure and raise the price. In a place where one sells a flat measure, one should not give a heaping measure. Because the bottom line is, is whether it comes to flat measure or heaping measure, you should do what everybody else does. And the reason for that is, is because we're concerned that someone is going to see it and they're going to misinterpret that here we have to go always heaping or always flat and it's going to cause confusion. Therefore, it's best if we follow the custom of the place. You giant name Medina, the people of a city or a country. Should also lace about the scholars who want to add to the weights or measures. You have the population who want to invoke an ordinance. They want to change the weight of the measure. It's a free country. They should not add or detract or subtract more than one sixth. We learned earlier and we're going to learn this in great detail in the laws of business that up to one sixth we can overcharge or undercharge. More than one-sixth, it's not kosher, it's dishonest. And here we go into a whole long philosophical question. What's the whole long philosophical question? Price fixing. Does the government fix prices? You know, when I first moved to California, we're going back to uh, 1973, there were three airlines that flew from New York, from what we call uh, JFK to what is called LAX. They were United, American, and TWA, all of us. And every one of the airlines were $348. And that's the way it was. And you couldn't pay less and you couldn't pay more because it was fixed. That's one approach, is that the government should fix the price so that everything should be fair. The seller should make a living, but not too much. The buyer should get a bargain, but not too much. Then there is the opposite philosophy, and that is free market. Let the market find its place. And therefore, the airline's going to lose money. Who cares? They're going to make too much money. You know, the market will work it out. These are the two philosophies. If need be, the government will bail out General Motors, but you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. The point is that the Torah takes an approach that the market should fix itself up to one-sixth, but it should not go crazy 
more or less than a sixth of the fair market value. So here we have, when somebody wants to change the definition of the weight in a certain community, don't go more or less than a sixth. For example, if the cob, up to this point in time, would hold five measures, and they made it hold six, or should be other they could do that, because that's one-sixth. But more than that, they shouldn't do. What is a cob according to the Gaut Chumash? 1.45 quarts in our world. A sitan is a wholesaler. He has to clean his measures once every 30 days. Ubalabais, a homeowner, once in 12 months. The a storekeeper, has to clean them from substance that should be stuck to it, and so on. Pamayim b'shabes twice a week, and he should wash his weights once a week. He should clean the balance every time he weighs in order that it not rust. Otherwise, it will rust depending upon what it's made from. So you said earlier you should make it from a precious material. I guess not everybody can afford to, to make it from a precious material. This is an interesting law. Somebody wants to weigh three quarters of a litre. Let's say in our world, you want to weigh three quarters of a pound. Somebody walks into a bakery, says, give me three quarters of a pound of cookies. How do you weigh three quarters of a pound? Again, today we have digital scales. We're not talking about today. We're talking about yesterday when I was young. He puts a pound weight in one, on one side, but he needs three quarters. Now, wouldn't you think he takes a half a pound weight and a quarter of a pound weight and puts them? No. He puts a pound weight on one side, the habosar, and the produce here, the example is meat, I said cookies, and the meat, or the litra and a quarter pound weight, the kafshmi on the other one. That'll give you three quarters of a pound. What's wrong with the first weight? If you say you take a half a weight, a half a pound weight, and a quarter pound weight on one side, and then you put meat in on the other side or cookies, what are we concerned about? Maybe the smaller weight will fall off. And the buyer will never know. Some commentaries say maybe he'll make it fall off. You've got to make a living, you know? And therefore, the other way is a lot safer. So we see how meticulous the Torah is, the closing paragraph of this chapter. The courts must appoint Lahami to appoint Shaitrim enforcers, what we call back in the word, the police. They have to appoint the police. Medina, Medina, in every community, in every city, in every zip code. Actually, Medina could mean city, town, country, town and country. And in every neighborhood, there has to be a department of weights and measures who have guys who come and inspect. Otherwise, a guy can really, I mean, be ripping off his customers. Who should go store to store. And correct the scales. And the measures. And set the prices. Here we talk about setting prices. People should not go crazy with prices. A person does not have the right, according to Allah, to raise his price irrationally. There's a beautiful story told. They tell a story once upon a time that the wealthy Rothschild traveled to the middle of Siberia where there were very few people and he found a, a kosher cafe, thank God, and he walks in and he orders a bagel and he orders an omelet and some coffee and they give it to him and they give him this crazy bill at the end for, I don't know, 50, 100 rubles, 100 times as much as it should cost. So Mr. Rothschild says to the proprietor, excuse me, mister, are bagels rare in these parts? He says, they're not really. He says, are eggs rare in these parts? He says, they're not really. He says, is coffee rare in these parts? He says, not really. He says, why do you charge me so much? He says, Rothschilds are rare in these parts. Gotta make a living. Now, my friends, if you're under 21, I don't want you to listen to this, okay? Please close your ears, thank you. Any storekeeper who had a weight or a measure that was lacking, or a scale that was lacking or broken, if it's repetitive, these enforcers, these policemen, have a right to give the guy a beating. Very un-American. Especially because everybody has video cameras now. As much as they're able to, they really give the guy a whooping. And to find him, as the court see fit. To enforce this, this is not a joke, because if you have a dishonest business practice, you destroy society. Anybody who raises prices more than a six, I'm going to learn the details of these laws. And sells at a high market. Why? Because Rothschilds are rare in these parts. say the courts have a right to beat him. The Kaifenese and to compel him. He has to sell at fair market value. So if you walk in to a Mercedes Benz place and the regular price of a Mercedes goes for $100,000 and they're charging you $101,000, it's okay. But if they're charging you $150,000, you can beat him. No, I'm just kidding. Please do not try to do that. I didn't say that. End of chapter 8. Rambam, Mishnah Torah. Hilchais, the laws of Geneva. Theft. And this is the last of a series of nine chapters, chapter nine. And as we introduced in the very beginning, and we will continue with the next series, there is a big difference between Geneva and Gezela. Geneva is theft, surreptitiously, shashtil, zuburnished, sneaky. Gezela is robbery with a gun. 
forcible stealing. That's Gizela. Right now, we're wrapping up Geneva. And in the Ten Commandments, there's also the commandment of lo signo, or lo digno, commonly translated as thou shalt not steal. Everybody thinks that means thou shalt not steal. In fact, the Rambam brought that Pusik earlier to support this mitzvah. But today we learn that literally that mitzvah, as well as every other mitzvah in the Ten Commandments, have to be something that is punishable by death penalty. And therefore, technically, the Ten Commandments commandment of thou shalt not steal really means steal people, kidnap. And there are certain conditions that have to be met before the death penalty can be attempted to be applied, according to the systems of Allah. Aleph 1, anyone who kidnaps a human being. First of all, Avery transgresses, a negative commandment, Shanema, as it says, lo tigno, do not steal. This verse, however, which is stated, Ba'aseres hadvorim in the Ten Commandments. He is, as horror, an admonition, a warning, for kidnapping. So when we talk about not steal, we mean not stealing people. And so also, one who sells a human being. This is called uh, the human slavery market. Stealing, kidnapping people, selling them. One transgresses a negative commandment. This is in the general rule of Do not sell him in the manner that a servant is sold. Now we have these two commandments, not to kidnap and not to sell the person. There is no lashes possible in these, in the transgression of these two negative commandments, even though commonly speaking, a regular negative commandment could result in lashes. Why not these? The answer is, as we learned repeatedly, because it's a negative commandment, associated with a court-imposed death penalty possibility. As it says, if a man will be found stealing, kidnapping one of his brothers, etc., one of his fellow Jews, there is a death penalty, etc., as the Torah says. What is the form of death penalty? We know we learn in the tractate Sanhedrin in great detail that there are four types of death penalties. This one is with the death penalty called chenek, which is strangulation. Now, there's a lot of conditions in order for the court to be able to try and prosecute with a death penalty. It's not a simple thing. In any event, it's forbidden. But in order to impose a death penalty, you need a lot of details, a lot of conditions to be met. This particular death penalty of strangulation can only be applied First of all, it has to be a fellow Jew. One is not allowed to kidnap non-Jews as well. And uh, anyone. But this particular sequence has a lot of conditions. It has to be a fellow Jew. And then, the kidnapper has to take the kidnapped person into his, the kidnapper's domain. So he has to actually take him into his domain. And then he has to make use of him as a slave. In any way or in some way. Then, he then has to sell him to someone else. That's the sequence. If you meet that sequence, fine. If there's something lacking in that sequence, you suddenly got a problem. Shenemar, as it says, he makes use of him and he sells him. So there has to be this sequence. Even though the use that he made of him as a slave is so minute that it's less than the value of the lowest denomination coin. For example, what's an example of a minor usage of a human being? He leaned on him. Oh, that's making use, but very little. He put his weight on him. Even though at the time the person who was kidnapped is asleep and he doesn't feel it, he's not aware of it, that is enough to fulfill the requirement of he made use of him. But if he kidnapped him and he used him even somewhat, and then he sold him, which seems to meet all the requirements. No. Because the person was kidnapped is still in his own domain. He was not moved into the kidnapper's domain. The thief, the kidnapper did not put him into his own domain. Potter, he's exempt from what? From death penalty. Again, we're, we're talking about death penalty. I had in yeshiva, my, one of my Rosh Hashivas, a very special man, Rabbi Isaac Shveya, blessed memory. Beautiful human being, passed away uh, relatively young from a terrible illness. Anyway, he was a, a dynamic educator. <clears throat> so in a case like this, he would say, you know, it's exempt. You can't apply the death penalty. He would say, you don't make a kiddush for him. You don't give him after. You don't give him shishi. But you can't prosecute for death penalty. In other words, there's a big difference whether there is a penalty imposed or you honor him at the banquet. <laughs> there's a big middle ground, and that is it's forbidden, and it's a transgression. <clears throat> you know, they hate the elders who say, what if he kidnapped him, took him into his domain, and make use of him, even somewhat. But he didn't do the last deed. What's that? He didn't sell him. Hey, or if he did it out of sequence, he sold him, before he made use of him. Hey, or another sequence, he made use of him. And he sold him, but... He sold him to one of the relatives of the kidnapped person. Again, for example, he sold him, the kidnapper sold the person he kidnapped to his own father. 
The person who's kidnapped, who was kidnapped's father. And the author brought to his own brother. And he's a potter, he's exempt. Why? Shenemar, as the verse says, of Nefesh may Echav, he has to kidnap, steal a soul from his brothers, from his family. Actually, he has to separate him from his own brothers. Or crave him from his kinfolk, as we say in Kentucky. But Mechiras, who's selling, it doesn't count if you sell him to his own relative. Again, it's a terrible transgression, but it doesn't meet the criteria to prosecute for death penalty. And so also in Genova, if he kidnapped him, Boyashin, the guy sleeping throughout, and he used him while he was sleeping, for example, he leaned on him while the guy was sleeping. And then he sold him, throughout he's sleeping, he's exempt. So these are many of the technicalities that have to be met for this death penalty prosecution to be able to kick in. Another scenario where he's exempt from death penalty prosecution. If he kidnapped a woman, what's the difference? There is no difference. But in this case, he kidnapped a woman because she was pregnant and he wanted the baby, the unborn baby. So he sold her for her baby. He said, once she has a baby, let her go. You know, babies are a commodity. Maybe not know from this. The underground world of babies. He made a condition with the buyer. That this woman, who is referred to here as a maidservant, a slave, Lee, this under, hold on to her. This all you can have is a baby she'll give birth to. Maybe or babies. Maybe she's giving birth to twins or triplets or, or quintuplets. This guy is exempt because he didn't sell her as a slave. He merely sold her unborn child or children. Hey, I has been If somebody steals his own son, kidnaps his own son, or I guess Achim and his own minor brother, Commentary say not necessarily minor, but even minor. A guardian of orphans kidnaps an orphan. That's on the orphan. That are in his trust, he kidnapped one of the orphans. And sells him. It's a living. Or the master of the house. Kidnap one of the people who rely on him for support. Or a teacher of children. Who kidnapped one of the young children. study under him. He used him. He sold him. He's exempt from death penalty prosecution. Why? As the verse says, the kidnapped person must now be found in the kidnapper's possession. This excludes all the above. Shame between the other, they're already in his possession. They're already in his class, in his family, in his household, in his trust, etc., etc. The one that kidnaps an adult, or one kidnaps a baby, a minor, then even one day old. And we learned in order for the violation to kick in with a one day old baby, there is a condition that the baby must be a full term healthy baby. Otherwise, we have to wait until the baby lives 30 days to establish viability. But this is this baby was a full term nine months baby. Then even if the baby is a day old, it's considered kidnapping. Ben Zohar, whether the, the kidnapped entity is a male, made a cave or a female, makes no difference. Ben whether the thief is male or female, makes no difference. Could be a bani, could be Clive. The death penalty can be imposed. Who kidnaps a person. We call him any kind, male, female, and so on. Whether somebody kidnapped a Jew, or a person who converted by his own desire and became a Jew, which means a born Jew, or a convert, or a slave, we learn technically, that a Canaanite slave, at the moment he becomes a full slave, becomes a Jew, he's immersed in the mikvah and so on, and then at liberation, he becomes a full 100% Jew. So that's also a Jew. Shanamar, <coughs> again, why are we so concerned? Because that's one of the conditions of the verse for this death penalty to kick in. Shanamar, nefesh may echob, a soul of his brethren, and the above, convert, liberated slave, are all our religious compatriots. Hein, potato, mitzvahs. We're concerned here with obligations of Torah observance and mitzvah observance. So that's the criteria. Abel, however, I'm going to if somebody kidnaps a slave who's not liberated, or a slave who belonged to two masters, as we learned earlier. One master liberated him and one didn't, so he's half and half. Potter, he's exempt from the imposition of the death penalty. It doesn't mean it's permissible. It's forbidden in every way, shape, or form. We're talking about death penalty. Now comes a famous law, which is actually outlined in the Torah, specifically, the portion of Mishpotim. What if somebody digs an underground tunnel? He tunnels under somebody's house. Whether by day, or at night, the guy pops up in your house. It's a beautiful story told. They tell the story in the shtetl. There was a uh, the city thief. His name was Yossel Degana. Yossel the thief. Yossel the thief. He makes a living stealing. Right? It's a living. Two o'clock in the morning, he comes down the fireplace, down the chimney in the rabbi's house, walks out of the fireplace and sees the rabbi sitting and learning. 
So the rabbi says, Yosel de Garnet, what are you doing here? How can I help you? You need something. He says, yeah. I came to ask a difficult halacha question by the esteemed rabbi. He says, no, for Ed, so I ask. He says, Rebbe, how do I get out of here? How do I get out of this predicament? That's also a question. So, you know, you dig under, you create a tunnel under somebody's house, you pop up, and all of a sudden the guy meets you in the tunnel. The answer is, if the homeowner shoots the thief, he can't be prosecuted. There's no blood. Of course, you have to expect if you're going to dig a hole underground and pop up in someone's house, he's going to feel threatened, he's going to shoot you. If the homeowner killed the thief who tunneled under his house, a Sharodam or anyone else killed the thief, <coughs> they're exempt from prosecution. In fact, everybody has a right to kill him. Whether weekday, maybe Shabbos, even on Shabbos. You're not allowed to kill on Shabbos. Except if a guy is threatening your life. How should he kill him? Whatever works. Shanam, you should kill him dead. as it says, ain't like There is no blood. Why? Because a guy comes into your house under a tunnel, you have to assume that he expects that you might encounter him, and if you don't shoot him, he's gonna shoot you. The law says, somebody comes to kill you, Hashkin, wake up an hour earlier, the and kill him. This is in plain English called self-defense. You have to assume a guy's tunneling into your house, he's an armed thief. Now it doesn't only mean a tunnel, it could be down the chimney as well. Whether a guy comes in on the ground tunnel. A guy never just a thief, who was found breaking into a guy's roof. He was cutting a hole in the roof. He figured you always wanted a sunroof. I say Khatsaidir in his backyard. I say Kartifa or in a courtyard, bang by yango, bang by laila, in a closed area. Whether by day or by night, it doesn't only have to be in the middle of the night, it could be in the middle of the day. The law is the same. In that case, Law and Emma Machteras, why does the Torah create such a dramatic scenario and say underground tunnel? If you're telling me any situation, this is the principle which the Rambam quotes many, many times from Torah. Diber Hakasabahova. The Torah talks about the most likely scenario. The most likely scenario, a guy's gonna rob your house, gonna do it in the middle of the night. And he's gonna dig a tunnel. But any way that works is what the thief does. They said to one of the most notorious bank robbers, why do you rob banks? He says, because that's where the money is. How much should I rob? So this guy has to make a living. He also began. Yes, now comes the question, the philosophical question. Why did the Torah permit the blood of his thief? You could argue, as some do, and many do. Why are you killing this guy? He only wanted money. You didn't have to kill him. Because the assumption is, that if the owner, the homeowner, would pop up, and try and stop him, he's going to kill him. Because that's what he's expecting. So therefore, the one who enters someone else's house, even only to rob, to steal, he's considered a threat to his life, a rape, a pursuer. We learned earlier the laws of one who pursues another to kill him. Somebody comes to kill you, wake up an hour earlier and kill him. That's why you should be killed. Whether this guy was an adult, he was a juvenile delinquent, he was a kid. You know there are female thieves too, and they're dangerous. What if, however, the facts were clear to the homeowner? That this particular thief, who is digging under his house or climbing to his roof, he's not going to kill him, come on. The guy's a peaceful guy. He's, he's wearing green. He's a nature person. All he needs is money. You know, King Solomon says, don't be so tough on the thief. He has to feed his children. He's got to make a living. Also, if it's clear that there's no life and death threat, it's forbidden to kill him. If he killed him, knowing clearly that he's no threat, then the homeowner becomes a murderer. A killer. The verse says, if the sun rolls over him, this in the verse does not mean the sun came out. The verse is not being a weatherman. A weather reporter, the verse is saying, in if the situation, the scenario, becomes clear as day to you, clear as the sunshine, that this guy is at peace with you, he's not killing you, he's not threatening you, then clearly, do not kill him. Because the only reason it's permissible to kill him, we're not looking for vigilante justice, we're looking to preserve the life of the homeowner. If he's not a threat to the homeowner, then by all means don't kill him. Therefore, the scenario is, in, under ordinary circumstances, a father who digs under tunnels under the house of his son, under ordinary circumstances, a father will not murder a son. Because we say Kirachim of Albonim, like a father has compassion upon his sons. A son can murder his father, especially for a few dollars. But a father will not murder his son. So again, commentary say, under ordinary circumstances, if this guy's a murderer, that's something else. If you can safely assume he's not going to kill him, then that's the law. But a son comes after his father, can be killed if there's any shred of doubt that he'll kill him. So also, a thief who stole, he robbed the house, and then he left, he went home. He didn't steal, but he, the homeowner found him leaving the tunnel. He's going away. His back is turned to the homeowner. Being that his back is turned, if you don't shoot a guy in the back, if he's no longer considered a pursuer, he actually dumb him, therefore he has to stand trial if he kills him. There's blood on his hands. 
So also a bunch of people surrounded him. If there were witnesses there, let's use a modern, modern terminology. If they're videoing him, there's a camera there. Even though he's still in the domain of the homeowner, but still, there's a big ruckus there. There are people, there are witnesses. And he cannot be killed because it's murder. Because you don't need to kill him to stop him. It's, it's over. Surely, if he comes, if, he take, if he's taken to court, he surely is not killed because it's not a capital crime. So also, if somebody breaks into a garden, a field, a pen, or a corral, and the guy kills him, there's blood on his hand because he's not causing danger, he's not coming into the house. Because he wants to do what he wants to steal is the new tomato crop, the kumquats, or a sheep, or whatever is in the corral. Because the thief correctly assumes that the homeowner is not going to be found in the yard, in the garden, in the corral, whereas before the yard situation was, he's on the way into the house. Closing paragraph. Any thief, where we say that there is blood on the homeowner's hands if he kills him, what if in the process he had an avalanche fall upon him, an avalanche of stones, he knocked the wall down, and he is trapped under a bunch of uh, stones. And it's Shabbos. And you're not allowed to move stones on Shabbos, except to save a life. Here, we may remove the stones, even though he's a thief, because you have no right to kill him. And therefore, it's life and death. You can violate Shabbos. <coughs> and if as he came in, he broke utensils, he has to pay, even though this may be a life and death, but not really, because there is blood if he kills him. So we don't have the come We don't have the fact that because he's exposed to possible death penalty, he doesn't have to pay because there is no death. Why? Because we say if a homeowner kills him, he's liable. Which means he's not a person who has death. But if somebody is a thief, where the homeowner who killed him would not be prosecuted, there's no blood on his hands, and on the way he broke expensive stuff, part of he's exempt. Why? Because he's got bigger problems. Because, there's a, because he can be killed. Can they be honest? We explained that's the principle of come lay, but the Rabbinate, Sliku, Lahu, Yilches, Yuneva, Bishyanta, Bishmai, the Rambam concludes that with the help of Hashem, we have now concluded the laws of theft should be with Mazul, Ubrocha, Omeh.